Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On today's episode of the podcast, I speak with Clint Vernon, the CEO of MessageDesk. MessageDesk is a Reno-based startup company helping small businesses with their messaging and payment solutions. Clint has a passion for helping small businesses, having grown up in one. He's got a unique background of both technology, running a small business, and military experience. His passion for service and growth really just come out in the podcast. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. So on with the podcast. Welcome, Clint, to the Growth Pioneers podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. It's good to see you. It's good to be in the flesh, working yes. in the podcast studio. It's been a while since we've seen each other. Yeah, it's been a little bit, you know, so I know you've been very busy and and uh, things seem to keep me running these days as well. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know if wandering around the country in an Airstream constitutes busy, but yes, I, have definitely... I think it does. I would qualify that. So I've had a few of those kind of adventures myself, and I think that they are absolutely essential and very, very like fall within the realm of building a, a world that, that makes you successful in life and business and both. So yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it is definitely good to be back. I mean, one of the things I noticed after being gone for so long is I really just miss being part of the community and doing the podcast and meeting people. So I'm just happy to be back. And honestly, you're one of the first people I've gotten to connect with on the way back. So it's just glad to have you here. Yeah. And I feel special. I feel lucky to be in that space. So. Yeah. So, hey, Clint, why don't you give a little bit of a background on your company, Message Desk, and you know, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, for sure. So I am uh, the CEO of Message Desk. We were founded here in Reno. I've got three other co-founders along with me. It was really my brother and I who first started, really my brother, Corey, who really first started the company. And then I came in and then we brought on Jason and Kyle to round out the team, the original team. But uh, yeah, for me, you know, for me personally, uh, I grew up here in Reno. I'm actually from Reno. I wasn't born here. I was actually born in Texas. Uh, my family moved out here when I was 10 years old. So I feel like all my formative years were, were here in Reno going to, yeah. you know, middle school and high school and whatnot. So after graduation, I went off to college, did my undergrad down at Arizona, at Arizona State. Oh, that's unfortunate. I went to U of A. Oh, did you? Yeah. That's oh okay. I'll, you can still stay at the podcast. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. I actually don't have a huge rivalry there, but you know. You know, it's funny you say, because like, I never picked it up either. Like, I knew it was there, obviously. And uh, I definitely felt it when I went to a few like basketball games, sure. football games, stuff like that. But, you know, ASU is such a big school that even back then, you know, I went, to, I was there in the 90s. And so I graduated in, in 99 from, uh, from ASU. And, but even back then, you know, it was such a big place that I think everybody was just kind of doing their own thing, kind of in yeah. their own space. You know, I was a, I was a business major that really focused on tech. You know, I was yeah. back then computer information systems was a very new thing. You know, now it's very common, but it was, nobody knew what that was yet. You know, it was still part of the accounting program and it was like, oh, these are accountants that do this. Like what's going on here? You know, it's accountants yeah. that write code. What, you know, nobody really understood what was happening yet. So. Well, we were in school about the same time. I graduated in 97. Oh, okay. And nice. so, yeah, it was definitely computer, you know, I was in computer engineering but the intersection of business and technology was still pretty much its infancy. I mean, that was early web days. and Absolutely, man. You know, it's, it's crazy to think back on it now because yeah. things have just come so far so fast, you know, and maybe that's always been the case, the arc of technology, right? But sure. I remember when I got to college, I was a freshman in college, that they had just released the first Pentium chip. It was like the Pentium 75, right? Everything before that, like when I was in high school and before it was, and I was always kind of nerdy and into computers, you know, even before I got to 
to the university and uh, yeah, it was all, you know, IBM 365s and stuff. And so, totally. yeah, and it was like Netscape and dial up. And that was, you know, the, when I got to college, the internet existed obviously, but it really wasn't a thing yet. Like nobody was getting on the internet to do anything, no, you know? No, And then even by the time we, uh, you know, it sounds like we're about the same track. Like by the time we graduated, that was already changing. And then you had, of course, this huge run up oh, yeah. in the dot-com bubble bust. I don't know if anybody remembers that anymore, but. Well, this, you know, I love talking to older technology guys because they're, yeah. they're always talking about like their uh, punch card days. We have to be yeah. mindful that we don't become, you know, the dial-up is the new punch card conversation. Totally, of old. But so you studied business. Yes. Um, and then. Have you always been an entrepreneur or is this kind of your first foray into entre- entrepreneurship with so, the message desk? right out of college, I come from a very entrepreneurial family. So I have a very entrepreneurial background in that regard. And, you know, I don't know that I even realized how much it affected me until I got a little bit further along in life. Right out of college, I actually went to work for what was still then Anderson Consulting. Oh, I remember Anderson. And yeah, they later became Accenture. So people know them today as Accenture. And so I joined Anderson in 1999 and was with them. That was really my my introduction into the tech world and into business. And really, you know, I showed up there thinking that I was going to be doing data modeling, really, because that was kind of my, my specialty was data modeling design and very quickly just moved into project management. <laughs> I realized that they bring on all the teams of contractors and, and other experts to do the, the actual coding and modeling design. They really just need their consultants to be in there, like running projects and making sure everything gets done. And that was still very much the days of like waterfall design before we got into, you know, agile development and whatnot. And so I, I had, it was, it was a, a really good foundation in like how thing, what to do and what not to do, yeah. <laughs> what yeah. works and what doesn't work. And so, but yeah, I actually started my career with Anderson and was going full, you know, full bore at that. And I was actually in the National Guard as well. I joined the National Guard uh, here in Nevada, actually the Nevada National Guard right out of high school. And continued to serve through college and into my career, the beginning of my career at Anderson. And so I was at Anderson when 9-11 happened. Oh, wow. And yeah, it was like, of course, for everybody that was there at that time, it was like, what is all this, you know? And and honestly, even for me, like, you know, I was uh, in the Army Guard just doing my thing every month and on the weekends, but I had no like real awareness of like global war on terror or anything sure. like that. You know, it was all, it was all something that was happening in somebody else's world, you know, really. So yeah, 9-11 happens and I stayed with Anderson, but you know, after that, everything got really crazy for a while. I got deployed several times. I never went overseas. I never served like in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan. I was actually in a a unit that number one responsibility was actually training other soldiers to go and fight. (laughs) And so, and that had been their mission before 9-11 happened. And then that just ramped up. And so I was very much engaged with just uh, helping other units get ready to go, which was a very weird, I don't know if I'm going to talk about that today, but it was a, it was, it was a very extreme experience. Oh, but sure. It was, yeah. But very weird, very odd to be, you know, helping others get ready. And it was very direct, like, because the units we were working with were like training with us and then literally getting on a plane and flying to the Middle East, <laughs> like wow. straight from us. And so there was no like, oh, maybe someday this will happen or you'll need this training. And, you know, in the future at some point, it was like, Oh, you're going to be doing this next week yeah. or next month, you know? It's so interesting how those, I mean, what a powerful experience for you. And and first, I just want to say, I appreciate your service. I mean, this is one of those things. I didn't grow up in a military family. And so it only in, you know, only in the last few years as, I, as I've worked with more folks that have gone, you know, down the military track, whether it's National Guard or going to West Point or whatever, I've really started to better understand the role of, of military service, both, you know, in leadership and just in terms of the, the impact it has on people's lives. And, and especially during that 
time. What it, it, what it, you know, that was a really powerful time to be in the military. It was at that point because I had joined in 94 all through college and stuff. You know, we were still thinking about the Cold War. You know, it was like this. We're st- you know, they always say, like, you, you fight the, pr- the last war that you were in, you know. And so it was a very like Cold War mentality, at least in the world. I was the part of the military that I was in, you know. And then after 9-11, it just everything changed immediately. It was like everything was just flipped on its head. Sure. You know? And I mean, maybe in some ways there's parallels there to like the world of technology, because that happens a lot in technology as well, where, you know, the iPhone is invented and all of a sudden everything's flipped on its head. Right. Sure. And so, yeah, for us, it was grappling with the just, OK, where are we doing now? Like, where do we go? Like, what's this new reality that we're we're going to yeah. be dealing with. And and, this, and then, yeah, just being in a National Guardsman, it was this weird, because it was this period right after 9-11 where I was still working at a, a Anderson and was on projects, you know, doing this big stuff with my day-to-day, but I was keep getting all these reports and things were moving and, you know, the, the wheels turned pretty fast at that time, actually, but still, even then, it takes a few months for everything to get figured out. Sure. And it's like, okay, here's the first deployment, we're going to go do this, and it's, you know, just all of a sudden, things just start happening, you know, and it was, for a National Guardsman, it was this weird reality of, like, I'm not completely in that world all the time. And, and, you know, that's always the case, even when it's not post 11 is like balancing between like the business world and like a civilian life. And then like this military life that was going on. And then, you know, we had a couple of quick things that happened and then, and then they got like into the longer deployments. My longest one was 16 months. Oh, know, wow. Doing, okay. So you did get really deployed. Yeah, for a while. yeah. Yeah. Doing training and whatnot. And, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, it really, it's, I really feel like it's those experiences that just build the foundation for how you approach life and like oh. how you approach work. It's definitely influenced, you know, my ability to deal with the the day-to-day trials and tribulations and stresses of like building a tech startup, you know. And, you know, in some ways it's funny, like there's a lot of things that happen, you know, these days that anybody would look at and be like, oh my gosh, you know, like these, this is challenging. And it is like, I'm not going to downplay like it is. There's a lot of challenging yeah. things in building a startup, but I do feel lucky that I always have had in the back of my mind, well, it's not like... Yeah. doing that. You totally. know? Like, yeah. You, you, you know, you have some perspective on yeah. what real challenges. Yeah. One of my favorite entrepreneur organization events was related to the National Guard. And it was such a, I thought it was such a brilliant idea. I mean, the short version of this was they took a bunch of entrepreneurs, put them on a C-130, flew them down to the border with Mexico. And then we flew in Chinooks along the border. But the whole point of that actually was to help business owners understand the role of National Guard because, you know, from a, if you don't understand that as a business owner, it kind of looks like a risk, right? You're training somebody, they may go away, they may come back, who knows what's going on. I mean, so there is, you know, I mean, there is a risk, but it really embedded in me, you know, no, this is part of our, you know, I don't know, you know, our national duty or this, this is a way business owners need to look at how we can work better with the guard. And it, it stuck with me forever. It's one of the most impactful events I've ever participated in. It's just really good to hear that, you know, you went through that experience and I'm sure it was difficult to manage that. I mean, did you come back to Anderson after you were deployed? So yeah, Anderson was fantastic. They like held my job for me. And I mean, they're required to by law, but you know, the reality when that plays out is it can go a lot of different ways, you know, and, and they were just absolutely excellent. Like I had huge support from them. After that last deployment, I had a couple where I was gone for a short period of time and came back. But then after that last big one, I decided not to go back to Anderson. I was really ready. I was away for 16 months and it had been a long, hard 16 months. I was really ready to to settle down a little bit in my own mind because as much as I loved Anderson, it was definitely a life of of travel, (laughs) constant travel. I was based out of the Phoenix office, actually. But I think... 
I used to joke actually because I'm a big baseball fan, and uh, I used to love to go to Arizona Diamondbacks games when I lived in Phoenix. And I used to joke that I think for several years there, I spent more time in the stadium when I was in Arizona than I did in my bed, <laughs> because like I was just always sleeping in a hotel sure. in a different city, you know, um, watching games. And so yeah, I actually decided not to go back to Anderson, and it really brought me back. That's where I, I really came full circle back to my family and back to my entrepreneurial roots because. My dad and my grandmother both have very entrepreneurial backgrounds. My grandmother actually started a housekeeping company here in Reno in 1989. And my dad ended up coming into it a couple of years later and helping her with it. After, you know, she kind of gotten it off the ground and it was kind of going and she didn't know how to grow it, you know. And so my dad ended up coming in and helping her grow it. And so I grew up around a family that was running a small business day in and day out and growing a small business. It's still here today. We're 32 years. Wow. In congratulations. That's a, that's an accomplishment. Yeah. And uh, my dad ended up taking it to Utah. And so we have offices out in Utah as well, like the Ogden Salt Lake area. And they're out there too. They're still there. And so I had kind of grown up around it, never really thinking, oh, this is something I would have made a career out of or anything like that. You know, I was very focused on like college and going off and doing all that stuff. Right. And so when I was really like doing a little bit of like, okay, where I want to go next, I guess soul searching in a way I was finishing this deployment with the guard and I was, you know, thinking I didn't want to go back to the Anderson and all that. I really decided to go into the family business at that point. And that was 2000. That was about 2004. It was early 2004. So yeah, I said, I decided that I wanted to get involved with the family business. My dad actually told me not to. He was like, don't do this. Like, go do something else. <laughs> Probably wise. I mean, you know, yeah. family businesses are their own set of unique challenges. For yeah, sure. absolutely. But I was all for it. And, you know, I was obviously very familiar with it, but I had never worked like actively in the company before. And uh, my brother had, he's been working, my, my brother, you know, his story was having grown up here in Reno, he actually went to college down in Southern California and then became a high school teacher. Economics was really his focus. He loves, he has flirted with getting a PhD in economics like throughout his life. And it may still happen, who knows, we'll see. But, uh, but yeah, he, you know, did his degree in economics and then actually became a high school teacher. And then it decided to leave that and become, come back into the family business several years after later. And so, you know, his story kind of runs parallel to mine. That's important only because like we ended up here we ended up working together, together in the sense. end. Yeah. 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 So, you know, he had come back into the business. I hadn't really worked in it. And I was started looking at other markets. Basically, I was like, if I'm going to come to family business, I want to expand. You know, we had Nevada and Utah, but I was obviously looking at Arizona. And then I was looking really hard at Texas. I decided to go to Texas because it's a bunch bigger market, you know, sure. did all the analysis of what the opportunity was. And really the the goal in coming through in 04, coming out of that the National Guard deployment was like, okay, I'm going to take what we've done accomplished here in Nevada and Utah. I'm going to take it to Texas. I'm going to just build out Texas. Like I'm going to start in San Antonio and go what they call it. They call it the I-35 corridor. Yep. So you go like San Antonio, people may not realize like Austin and everybody, Austin's blowing up these days. Yeah, but Austin and San Antonio they're, are like connecting now. I mean, not exactly, but they're close. I mean, basically. Yeah. They're only about 45 minutes apart. And like, it's becoming just one huge metroplex between yeah. the two. And so when you say San Antonio, you're almost in Austin and vice versa. Right. And, and even the North of of Austin, there's there's this series of like towns that were all little towns back in the day, but now with everybody moving to Texas, it's like, you know, they're all just filling out. And so it's becoming kind of like solid metropolitan area yeah. all the way from San Antonio to Dallas, Fort Worth. And so was that a good market for you guys? I mean, did that work out? It was out? excellent. Yeah. So we went down to San Antonio. I started in late. I opened because in, in in a lot of field service, but in housekeeping particularly, you have very it's very focused around spring and fall seasons. 
So I started like fall of 04 and man, we just went like gangbusters. You know, we went, and this is a small business. It's not, it's funny in the tech world. I think everything gets distorted. Like we can talk about the numbers around message desks at some point and they get really crazy. But, you know, in small business, we went from a start to a million in annual revenue in like three and a half years. Right. Which and it's pretty remarkable considering that only 10% of us businesses ever break a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was which great. Is, it's hard to imagine that that's the figure, but it's a, you know, I mean, maybe getting a little bit bigger, but this is, this is the foundation. This is why the cutoff for EO or the floor for EO is a million dollars. Cause it's, yeah. it is not easy to hit to a million dollars in revenue. Yeah, it's really not. And you're absolutely right. So many. And that's really like, you know, as we talk today about small business in general and the challenges of small business, like so many people in their day-to-day lives don't realize how hard it is to like launch a small business, to get it off the ground, to get it up and running and to build something out of it, you know. And even, you know, even around tech, I read this just the other day, this statistic, and and I didn't fact check it, but it it was saying that like only 10% of tech startups ever get to revenue, not profitability, just to revenue. (laughs) And I'm like... That's interesting, you know. Doesn't surprise me. I mean, you know, there's yeah. a lot of really great ideas that sound good that are hard to turn into to yeah. reality. But yeah, exactly. So, so for me, yeah, we got down on the ground in in Texas and started building, and it was going great from, you know, late '04 until 2008, and we got up. We were over a million, and I was looking at to start expanding, adding offices. And then the Great Recession happened. Wow, okay. And it just slammed us, you know. Sure. I mean, it slammed everybody. And it's so funny, you know, we're, we're, we're like, you know, at least one, if not two disasters beyond that at this point, it feels yeah. like. It was interesting, you know, I was reading this article the other day. We were talking about inflationary pressures that are happening right now in the market. And really, it, the article I was reading in the Wall Street Journal was talking about how, like, okay, all of this policy was built around the Great Recession. Right. And like dealing with the Great Recession. And now they're trying to figure out how they want to adjust and whatnot for the post-pandemic era, you know, or or the pandemic. I don't know if we're post yet or not. That's for someone else to determine. So, yeah. um, It depends on when we release the podcast, probably. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so, yeah, in 2008, I lost 40% of the company in about, it was over a three-month period. But it was about really about like six weeks. Oh, that's <laughs> and, brutal. And part of that's just the nature of a residential housekeeping as a service. It's definitely a luxury service in a lot of people's minds. My dad and my grandmother used to always refer to us as the canary in the minefield, in the mine shaft. Yeah, sure. Because we're like in that particular service, we're the first thing that people drop, but we're also the first thing that you bring back. Like it's a very interesting world as far as being economic indicator because yeah. you can see in our data literally three to six months before you'll see it published, like what the trends are economically, because people react very quickly. We're very easy to let go of and we're very easy to bring back, yeah, you know? And so that's... it's a very, very early indicator to like the direction the economy is going. It's good. That's a good thought. I mean, I need to bring a bunch of housekeeping companies into my sphere of influence yeah. so I can you know, get a good sense of how the market's going to move. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a very interesting thing. Especially because like, you know, and this is business at large. And this is actually what a lot of what we're trying to do with Message Desk today is we help and work with SMBs, small, medium-sized businesses that when I did come into the family business, I came out of from an Anderson background and a technical background. And so I bring analytics to the table. And yeah. really it was my dad as well. My dad, his background is actually as a physicist. He had actually had a whole career early in his life doing rocketry, literally like Defense Department rocketry stuff before he decided to leave that and, and go a different way. You know? And so, on that point, so why don't, you know, tell me a little bit more about Message Desk because so, you know, people can put it in context, just, oh, yeah. re, you know, just in short, and we'll get back course, to you. Of know. course, yeah. So Message Desk is a text messaging platform that's focused on small, medium-sized businesses. And basically what we do is we make it possible for companies to really f- run the entire 
life cycle from acquiring customers through lead acquisition to providing the service to them, be it a, you know, a field service company or a veterinarian or whatnot, whatever type of company it is, to then being able to collect payment. We automate the payment process, the payment collection process and the uh, accounts receivable process to then getting reviews. And then starting over, you know, a lot of people, you hear this term a lot these days, a flywheel. Yep. And this process has kind of always been there. You know, like if you, if you run to the, to before all the digital world that we live in today, you know, you would advertise in some way, maybe in the newspaper or in the yellow pages or something, right? And then people would call you. Everything was really done over the phone. Mm-hmm. You know, people would call you and you might, if you'd say, you'd say field service specifically, you would set up an estimate and you would go out and do the estimate. And then you would provide the service and providing the service consisted of like scheduling teams and calling teams on the phone and calling customers and making sure everybody's in the right place at the right time, doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then eventually the job gets done and then you got to get paid. And that might be like literally like mailing a check to someone, you know, like old school. And then once you get paid, you wanted a referral if you could get one, you know, reviews back in the day weren't as big of a deal because we didn't think about like reviews the way you didn't have the, yeah, you didn't have like Yelps and yeah, no, no Yelp or Google review, but you always want a referral. Referral has always been important, like part of your business, right? For a lot of small businesses. And then the cycle starts over. Well, the reality that we live in today is that no one wants to be talking on the phone and the customer's expectations about what an experience is going to be, a service experience is going to be, and the employee's expectations have evolved, right? And so a lot of small businesses are struggling to keep up with that. They still haven't gotten past the phone. And so they're trying to figure out how do you manage this, you know, what we'd now refer to as this flywheel of acquiring leads, providing the service, getting paid, and then getting the reviews to get more leads. How do you do that in the modern age? And Message Desk does that. Like wow. we make that possible. Yeah, that's really. I thank you for helping me really understand. I mean, that was very clear to me. And it's what I think is especially interesting is, you know, you can start to see how your life experiences have yeah. led you to this this product, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. your background in analytics, your direct experience in small business, and you know, really knowing the problem. And is that? Yes. I mean, is is that sort of how this idea came together? Yeah. So the, the way we originally started Message Desk, so I was working down in Texas and my brother was here in Reno and he was working the family business. And we had this need in our own company. We identified this need in our own company and we didn't have a solution in the market for it. We couldn't find a solution in the market for it. And my brother just started building it. That was really, he was really, he was the one. It's funny because like, you know, he has a background in economics as far as his education, but, you know, he had never written a line of code or anything like that early in his life. I had done tons of that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I had done tons, tons of time in, in early tech. And so it, you would have thought the opposite. You thought I would have been the one that was like, oh, let's do this. But I was so engrossed in what I was doing down in Texas that I didn't, I didn't see what was happening with this and initially. And Corey did. And then he was like, man, this is what we're, what's happening. And, and part of this too, and, you know, I forget, what do they say? You know, what is luck? It's like a lot of hard work and a lot of discipline, a lot of effort applied at just the right time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, I like that. And, and I think that we experienced that for sure. And that, you know, we were working very hard and we had a very salient understanding of like what was happening in our own businesses, but really like in the small business space at large, because we have a front row seat to the, to the small business world. Sure. And then it was happening right at the time when like tech was making a next evolution. So we were, you know, earlier we were talking for a minute about like the, just the, the dot-com bubble and like the, in the advent of like the internet as a marketing thing. And that was kind of like the, in, you know, in my mind, like one of the, the big first step in the digital age. And we saw that play out in the early 2000s. Well, really, so, you know, fast forward to, you know, 2000, not that long ago, this is recent history, right? Like 2010 and what you really saw is like what I think of now as like the second evolution of tech is the move to the cloud. 
Yeah. And it's the move to APIs, right? Like nobody was talking, like when I was building stuff for Anderson in the early 2000s, nobody was talking about APIs, right? Like we were literally, part of the project was like, oh, we're going to bring in servers, like literally buy hardware. Oh yeah, we've gone back and forth. I mean, like client, you know, the early versions of client server, yeah. trying to move stuff. I yeah. mean, I was in business intelligence for a long time. So it was always that shift between server and client and back and forth. And totally. Yeah, APIs were, er yeah, there was a pretty early web 1.0. I mean, it was not on everybody's mind. Exactly. And, you know, for most consumer software, most software was still off the shelf. You literally would go to Office Depot and buy a box that had QuickBooks in it, you know, and say, oh, here's my QuickBooks. I'm going to have CDs. I'm going to CD-ROMs. I'm going to install this. That was the reality up through 2010, really. And so, you know, Corey is identifying this problem in our own business at a time when there's no solution in the market because anything that you were really looking at was basically like a box off the shelf type thing. And that just wasn't available, you know, for, for small, medium-sized businesses. And so when he and I really started looking at doing message desk early on, it was just in the early days of when like cloud computing, people still didn't know what that was. Maybe, maybe they don't do today. They don't even know what it is today. I don't know. Jason, my CTO has a t-shirt that says cloud computing is just somebody else's computer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> The cloud is just somebody else's computer. That's sure. what I said, the cloud. And so, but yeah, it was the early days. And so, you know, now it really opened this door and that's what you see, I think a lot in, in tech today at scale is that you can spin up a company and you can buy server space on Amazon Web AWS or on, on Google, wherever you want it to be. And you can start building out all of these connections. And it really becomes this like interconnected web of APIs that can be extremely powerful. And there's still a ton of work there. Like it's yeah. not, it's but not th that. But there's a lot of, like, it's a lot of connecting. It's like putting the glue together. Absolutely. Like when I was in early Web 1.0 development, you were writing the glue and the bricks and the, th you know, you had to do yes. all of that work. And so it's, yeah, it really it's different. Just brought, it brought the barriers down, you yeah. know, to development because it no longer took a team of 50 developers and $100,000 in server hardware to build something really good or really dynamic, you know, like you could literally with a small team go out there and start spinning up servers and start connecting them to things. And then it really becomes about like solving the problem, right? Like, okay, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And so where we really, you know, got lucked out, I guess you might say, is that we we knew the problem. We could see the problem like that was happening in our own businesses and others like ours. But we identified it right at the time when you could actually go and do it. Like you could actually go and build it. it the, the, the technology was available. The raw tools, the mechanics were available to go really solve those problems. And so when did you start Messages? So Corey started it, the very first version. He really, and it was... It was like 2014. Okay. I came onto the project in late 2016 and he had already built like the first version by then. And we were using it in our family business. Oh, wow. So you really built it as an in-house solution. Yes. Oh, initially. Okay, cool. Yeah. Corey was very focused on the in-house solution. I was really the one that was like, hey, I think we could do more with this. And, and the timing was right. So sort of rewind a little bit. What happened, you know, with me in Texas was I had built this housekeeping company down there and with the intention of like basically expanding it all over the state and then Arizona too. Great Recession happens, lose like, you know, 40% of the company almost overnight. Super painful. I thought it was just going to fail. Honestly, I was like, this is, this is going to go down, man. <laughs> like I was like, I'm going to, you know, there was literally a night where I was sitting at my desk and this is like late 2008, right? You know, like Christmas basically, like December 2008. And I'm looking at my financials and I, at the time, we still had housekeepers that were working, but I had a general manager that was running everything for me, you know, and working with me and Liz is her name. And I say it because she's still there today. I was literally sitting at my desk at like 11 o'clock at night and I realized I couldn't pay both of us. 
Wow. Like one of us was going to have to go. (laughs) And she had been with me the entire time. Like I was fortunate uh, to find her like right at the beginning when I was spinning up the original office in Texas. So she had been with the organization, you know, at that point, like four years, right? It had been a four-year run for her and she had been running like the day-to-day operations largely. And I was like, man, I'm going to have to lay Liz off. Like this is where I'm at. And so I decided not to. I decided to actually lay myself off instead. Cause I, I couldn't pay both. So, oh, wow. So yeah, I laid myself off <laughs> in Christmas <laughs> at Christmas. That was like Christmas, 2008. And I actually, at the, I laid myself off and the next day I made Liz a partner. Wow. So I brought her in and she's, I brought her in for half the company and made her partner. And she still is my partner today down in Texas. Wow. And it's really a tribute to her because the company survived. It made it, it made it, it's going strong. We're 17 years now. We never ended up expanding. And I shouldn't say never. I mean, I'm still young and Liz is still young. We might, who knows where she'll end up taking the company over the next 10 years. The door is still there. It's funny how things have gone because if you talk to me in 2018, just two years ago, I'd be like, oh yeah, Liz is definitely going to end up like taking Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, those markets. COVID hits, obviously now we have to reevaluate a little sure. bit, but, but yeah, we've, we're 17 years in Texas and uh, Liz runs the company down there. I still talk to her all the time on the phone. She's a, uh, has one of the few very direct lines to me these days. <laughs> and she, it's really a credit to her. She yeah. did all the heavy lifting. So uh, what, um, a, what a visceral entrepreneurial moment. I mean, this is one yeah. of the things that I have, I've had my own visceral entrepreneurial moments, but you know, I, I think if you talk to any entrepreneur that's had any time in the market, yeah. we all have those moments. I mean, oh, yeah. And they're clear as day. And I'm sure it's, you can bring that back like it was yesterday. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I think that really speaks to you as a leader. It's, I mean, what a difficult choice and and look how it's played out. And it's, you know, allowed you to not only you know, to, to grow there, but then to move on and do some other things, which is really pretty remarkable. Absolutely, man. You know, it's it's crazy because like you look back, I look back at that time and I'm like, oh, I was, I just felt like, like I had just failed, you know, I was like, oh man, I'm failing at this. And, you know, and people, it's easy to say like, oh, well, there was a great recession. It's the recession's fault. And, and, and absolutely there's a factor of that, like no doubt, but it's just, I find that as an entrepreneur and, and maybe this gets back even to my experiences in the military, like you just don't make excuses. Like I, for me in my own mind, like I just like, no, if this doesn't happen, it's my fault. You know? yeah, sure. like, I'm responsible for this. Which is great. And, I mean, uh, I think having that level of responsibility is really powerful, right? Like yeah. You need those leaders. I, I do think that there's an interesting, I mean, we don't have to naturally go on that path of mental health here, but, you know, there is something that it's kind of a double-edged sword around identifying in that, that, you know, you see with entrepreneurs. I mean, entrepreneurs carry a burden that can be productive, but I'm not always sure it's the most healthy for them. Absolutely. So how do you create that discernment around when to take that responsibility. Like, you know, I, I wouldn't look at you and, and ever say, hey, you failed. All I mean, right. you know, maybe you didn't get the outcome that you were looking for given the circumstances, but if you did everything you could, it sometimes works against you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, that's part of the life experience. Like not, my perspective on that now is far evolved from where I was like that night in 08, sure. you know? And uh, then, you know, I was, I was still, I was thinking, I was like, 29 or 30. I was, you know, it was was, just a baby, just a lad. Yeah. And that was like my mindset at the time, you know, and I absolutely agree with you, man. Like, yeah, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother podcast. And like the evolution of that, that the mental health of an entrepreneur and like the mental health of, of being a leader in general, it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's very nuanced. And it was not a nuance that I appreciated at that time. And so, you know, looking back on it, I remember sitting there and feeling like a failure 
But then, you know, to the point you were just making, like, you know, you fast forward to now and it was a huge asset. Like, like the experience that came out of that in like having that experience and like working through it and figuring it out and suffering for it. And then like moving beyond it, like I wouldn't trade it for anything in retrospect. Yeah. At the time I was like, oh my gosh, like my whole future, I just lost it, you know? Totally. And, no, exactly. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I can really resonate with that. I had a, you know, startup that we sold it for a couple million, but we'd taken in 10 million and I had to lay off mm -hmm. like 30 people. And, yeah. and unfortunately I carried around that, that sort of badge of failure yeah. for a while. Yeah. Um, like a long while, years, but ultimately probably through a very similar process, yeah. realized like that's the best thing I could have ever done. I mean, Absolutely. It brought me to where I am today, but it, it takes some real reframing to get through that. So I, I appreciate you sharing that story because yeah. it definitely really strikes a chord with, with my own experience. No, it does. It was very formative, you know, and I like said, now when I look at what we, what we're working on today, like, you know, I wouldn't trade it, those experiences. It just, it's provided me with a, a perspective on everything that we do that, it's essential for me. It's like, I think it's what makes things really, I wouldn't say like work, but I'd say like work better. Yeah. You know, you know for me, what I've learned is, you know, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, yeah. you know, you do coaching and, you know, and supporting mentoring. You know, it's, it's one thing to give sort of theoretical advice. It's yeah. another thing to have what I would call like bone knowledge. Yes. That knowledge that yes. is hard fought. Dude, and, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that term bone knowledge. It, I like that a lot. It's hard fought knowledge. So yes. that deep in your bones. Yeah. And, you know, I've got to imagine you know, for the type of product that you serve and the people you serve, I mean, you have that bone knowledge yes. of what it means to be a small business entrepreneur. Yes. So like you really get not only the, you know, the tactical challenge that you're solving, but the overall challenge of what it means to be a small business owner, obviously through your grandmother, your father, your own experience. I mean, that is so invaluable to bring that out into the world through your products. Absolutely. You know, that's really where my passion lies now. You know, I look at the state of like, and people hear this, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's kind of tossed around a lot, but I, I don't know if they have the bone knowledge about it. You know, like small business really drives our economy, like an aggregate, you know, I was actually just looking at the stats this morning in preparation for this podcast. You know, it's like 44% of the economy is driven is, is small business. And, but small business actually provides over half of all the jobs. So what that means is like, you look at like, especially these days with automation, you look at a lot of, a lot of big corporations, they're, they're producing a lot of economic generation with a very small teams, you know, really most people in the world, not just the United States, but let's say focus on the U S but most people in the United States, they work for small businesses. That's where their jobs are. And that's going to become even more so, you know, like as automation continues to increase and as productivity continues to increase at the corporate level, more and more, the people that you live with every day and that are in your day-to-day -day space are all going to be working for, owning, and operating small businesses. It really is the foundation. Yep. And I also feel that it's the dynamism. I don't know if that's a real word or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the dynamism of the economy. You know, any like big, vibrancy. The vibrancy, kind of yeah. Because, yeah. you know, even like big businesses see this, right? Like it's become a very popular strategy with a lot of big companies where the way that they grow new products and expand their markets to buy small businesses because that's where the innovation is happening is in the small business. And that was my experience with the medical device company. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I am extremely passionate about the small business ecosystem at large, having grown up in it and having just experienced it firsthand and lived in it you know, myself. And I've got to see it at three different levels now because I, my family and doing it myself literally with in Texas. And then what happened actually, so it's Christmas, 2008 and I'm out of a job and broke basically bankrupt. And I'm like, Oh, I got to go get a job. And this was having come from like, I had, you know, made a lot of good money at yeah. Anderson and met a good life and like everything. And I'm like starting over, right. You know, bankrupt as entrepreneur. 
And I was like, man, I gotta get a job. So I ended up going back to school for a master's and becoming a CPA. Oh, interesting. So yeah, you know, it was right. Humbling experience probably. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I, it was, part of it was just that I was really burnt out after building. Cause it's, it's hard just building. You know, we had, so we had this big run, like this four year run. Yeah. Like we were, we were doing great, but it's still like, man, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a yeah. lot of grind to build. And then to like have the rug pulled out from under, from underneath you, like just a couple of months. I was like, oh man, I'm burnt out. Like, I don't know where I go from here, you know, and I've got to figure out how to like get back on my feet or whatnot. And so going back to school felt like, and it was still like the heart of the recession. So now we're into like 2009, 2010. Yeah. And like, you know, for kids who graduate from college in that time, they were like, there was no, there was not good opportunities. Opportunities. Yeah. yeah there was opportunities were very limited. So yeah. Anyway, I went back to school and I was, I was really, and what's interesting is even then, so you think, well, why become an accountant? I was never interested in being a, a CPA for like a big corporation. That was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to go work with small businesses. And I had seen it from the consumer side, you know, like working with them. And I was like, you know what? This is something it's really uh, for me, it, it felt even still very entrepreneurial because like accounting is one of those things kind of like law too, where you can go put your shingle out. It's like, yeah. you know, I had this vision of like, oh, I'll just go put my shingle out and service small businesses as a CPA. I didn't need to put my shingle out. I did go become a CPA. I was working for a CPA firm there in San Antonio, actually, you know, just early in my career, building my chops. And, yeah. and But all of my clients were small businesses. And so that was really like the third tier for me, yeah. of like the small business. I talk about my passion for small business, but that's not even really relevant. It doesn't matter if I'm passionate about small business or not. What's relevant is, is that small business is literally the economic foundation of our country. That's yeah. what's important. And so if you look at like, okay, this is this reality of like small business and its roles that it plays in our world. And I did, I got kind of three front row seats for it between yeah. my family, my own experience. And then as a CPA helping small businesses and, you know, it was those things like, you know, we do their taxes and people think of accountant doing taxes, but with small business clients, it's, they would come to me literally like in tears. Like I can't make payroll on Friday. Yeah. Like I can't make payroll. What do I do? Yeah. Those are difficult days. You know? And I'd be like, well, let's look, what can we do? Oh, your payroll is, and I'm going to make up numbers. Like, you know, you're saying your payroll's $50,000. You have $250,000 in accounts receivable on your books. Well, what about that? Hit the phones. <laughs> yeah. You know. Like, let's get that down, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot of mechanisms, there's a lot of ways you can factor receivables, yeah, a lot of things totally. you can do around that, right? So, you know, and that's just one example. But like, yeah, it was like, let's sit down and like figure out, you yeah. know, you really become like a counselor, a business counselor to some degree. And, you know, and I think in, among CPAs, there's, there's some controversy probably about that. That's probably another rabbit hole I don't want to go down because there's, a, you know, a lot of in the profession, there's a lot of liability. You start to take on liability, yeah. basically, if you start to give advice or start to help people. And I could see that too, you know, from where I was sitting and in the firm I was with. And one of the things that really attracted me to, to jumping out of that and coming in to do message desk was that I wanted to be able to like help in a more dynamic way sure. than we even could at the firm, you know, like yeah. more and, and offer more dynamic opportunities. And so, yeah, you know, at that, so I'm, I was in Texas working as the CPA. So I'd gone through school, I'd gotten licensed, you know, I'd set for the exams and all that and uh, was working, helping small businesses. And that was right at the time. Corey had already started message desk up here just for our own use in our own yeah. family business. The company was still going down in Texas. Liz is running it, but it was still just, it was in the depths of the recession that are just coming out of that, you know, it was coming out of the depths of the recession. And so I saw what was going on. I was like, man, I'm ready to jump back in, you know, and I, and I saw what Corey was doing. I was like, man, I think we can really help a lot of businesses with this, yeah. not just us. And then that really, and I was seeing it then, and it's just become even more so now where I really realized like large corporations, like the digital age is happening, whether we like it or not, it's happening fast. And from a lot of, from a lot of people's perspective, it's already happened, Right. 
And for large corporations, they have resources in place to, to like make those leaps forward, yeah. right? And for the consumer market, there's going to be those leaps are going to be there for the consumer market, right? Because big companies are going to, and I have nothing as big companies. I'm all for them, Mike. But I'm just saying like, if you look at, at enterprise and at consumer markets, those markets are covered, right? Like people are taking care of those markets as far as like building tech for them. Yeah. Nobody's doing it for the small businesses. Yeah. Well, it's hard. I mean, it's a more fragmented market. One of the things that you keep saying is, you know, you, you see small businesses as a foundation, but that's not like a, that's, I mean, yes, the data supports that, but it's, it's more than just a theory for you. It's real for you, yes. right? Like it comes out of it. So, I, I mean, I, you know, this is one of the things I really appreciate about you and, and entrepreneurs, right? I mean, you clearly have a passion for this, that you have your own personal direct experience through that, but then you also can marry that direct experience with the opportunity. That's unique, right? Yes. The fact that you could see this problem other people can't see this problem. I mean, it takes a unique set of things to come together for you to see this problem. And and you obviously care deeply about yeah. the small business owner. I mean, it yeah. just comes across in every aspect of this. So, yeah, and, and I agree with you. I mean, that obviously all the people that are looking to build things, you know, enterprise, there's a lot of good yeah. reasons why to do that. But given your background, I can totally see why the small business market would be. And it's a huge market. It's huge. It's just, oh, it's immense. It's an immense market. And not only is that, but yeah, absolutely, it's it's... It's this reality of being able to appreciate the day-to-day grind of making it happen. Because it happens around us all day, every day, and we don't even notice. It's kind of like, you know, we all drive on bridges and we expect them not to fall down. Well, there was someone, some engineer, who like spent a lot of time and effort to make sure that bridge doesn't fall down. But we don't even consider it. It's not a part of our thought process. Well, this is actually, you know, I do have this thought process. It's kind of maybe TMI, but like every day when I'm in the shower, I think about all of the people that it took to bring hot water to the house. This thing that I think of every day, I don't even think about. But it's kind of taken like the sum of the world's population and (laughs) intelligence to bring hot water to your house. I mean, think about all of the government laws building codes, the people that design the, the systems, the transport systems, like, you know, the simplest act, something you never even think about, getting hot water to your house, has had thousands, if not millions of people involved in that process. That's absolutely the case. That's absolutely the case, you know, and when it comes to small business, they're doing, it's that same reality, but they don't have anyone really helping them on their day-to-day and they don't have those resources. And it's very difficult now because, you know, we're at risk of losing a lot of our small business ecosystem yep. nationwide. And it, it's, it, it speaks to a larger, you know, socioeconomic problem of like, you know, you, you end up with more of like a have and have not society, you know, for me, like small business goes equals middle class, you know, like I was a very middle class, blue collar family, right? Like, I know there's some small business owners that are very, do very well and whatnot, but, sure. but you know, for, for my family and for us, like, you know, we never wanted for anything. We're a very middle class family. But like when I think of small business, I'm thinking of like the mom and pop companies sure. that are like, you know, and hiring their neighbors basically to do yeah, the work, yeah. you know. And yeah, like we're in a space now economically where it's very, very difficult to be successful. You know, if you look at like America in the post-World War II era, it was still it was always hard work starting a company. But like there was there was a lot of opportunity. It was much easier to go out and just start something from really 1950 through like 1990s, you know, really. You look at the second half of the 20th century, it's harder now. You know, it's still doable, still very possible. Like, oh. I don't want to be a downer. Like, that's not just the opposite. Like, you can still do like really dynamic things. But like, it used to be, I think, that there was more space to make mistakes. And now in, in starting companies, there's less space to make mistakes. You have to really go into it with a clear understanding of like, 
who your market is, how you're going to make money. People who may have never even have heard of a pro forma. Yeah. Like now you really got to understand like, okay, what does a pro forma look like for this particular business? You yeah. Know? Hence the rise of all of the franchise businesses. Yes, and all that. totally. Yeah, it's totally. An I mean, what an interesting, it's definitely a different market than I remember. I mean, you yes. think about all of these people that, you know, have got a great, now they franchise it. It definitely enables a whole set of, of new entrepreneurs, but it's, it definitely takes some of the risk out of it. Absolutely. But there's still, I mean, what do you think the market opportunity in terms of, for, for message desk? I mean, what do you think your addressable market size is for this? <laughs> it's it's kind of ridiculous, actually. You know, there are, according to the S SBA, Small Business Administration, there's 30 million small businesses in the United States wow. today. Okay. You know, it's a huge number. I mean, yeah. you don't have to get very many of those. No. You know, you look at, it's probably the most successful small business tech company in the world is Intuit, QuickBooks, because yeah. they really started servicing the small business community early in the, they really started in the 80s with their first desktop software. And you know, the founder lives here. The early no, founder. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh gosh, his name's escaped me here. But he, the the, the guy that sold, uh, started yeah. Quicken or QuickBooks, sold it to Intuit because Intuit had some other yes. pieces. And he is based in Reno. That's very interesting. And his name's going to escape me, but he's got a bunch of Porsches. Yeah, I've, I've seen his Porsche. Yeah, Porsche. I'm sure he does. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and so you know, and I th so if you think of like QuickBooks and, and Intuit, the company that owns them, is like kind of the the cornerstone, like granddaddy of small business tech. You know, they have like 9 million users, right? And yeah. QuickBooks has 9 million users. And that's, so that's less than a third of the total small business population. And they're like, I should have looked it up. I don't know what. Oh, it's a huge camp. Yeah. Like, so I've been to their campus because so in 2018, we were actually a, a top 10 new app on the Intuit app store. And they invited us over to Mountain View, you know, right over the hill. And literally Intuit's campus shares a wall with Google. Like a fence, a fence yeah. line with Google in Mountain View, in the heart of Silicon Valley, right? It's one of those companies that nobody really thinks about because they may not be as sexy as like a Facebook or something, yeah. but they just dwarf them. Like, yeah, they're just dumb. I mean, I don't know about their valuation. Somebody's going to fact check me on that. But like, I mean, they're just, they've been around forever and they're a huge company, you know? And it's it's focused on SMBs, focused on small business, yeah. you know? And yeah, right in the heart, grew up right in the heart of Silicon Valley. And so does that, is that the aspiration for message desk? I mean, do you think you could be into its size? I mean, do you, is it a stand? I mean, it, is the product and market big enough for that? Or I mean, kind of where absolutely. do you, where do you see? Yeah, yes. You no, see? absolutely. You know, the SMB market, the, like the sky's the limit. You know, I think of it often, I call it blue water sailing. Oh yeah. You know? I love, have you ever seen, have you read blue ocean strategy? No, I haven't. I should check that okay, out. Okay. Well, I'm then tell me what blue ocean sailing is all about. Maybe for me, blue water sailing means that the opportunity is so deep and so vast that you can't see the bottom of it. Okay. Very you know? different. A little bit of mixed metaphor. Sorry. Yeah. Blue ocean strategy basically is the idea that like the red ocean is where everybody else is battling. Oh, okay. And blue ocean is a completely wide open ocean. Yeah. So yeah, a little yeah. bit different. Sorry. It didn't mean to mix metaphors. Yeah, right? no, I, no, like, I like the opportunity so big, you can't see the bottom. Yeah. Of it. It's, it's so big, you can't like see it. the bottom of it. So, and it's not like, you know, we're not the only company that's going to be addressing, sure. you know. Thankfully, that's always concerning. <laughs> yeah. You are. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're in a space where there's, you know, even with the SMB, like there are so many different use cases. There are so many different pain points that you can really just pick a couple and build an entire, you know, you can get to a billion dollar valuation with just a couple of pain points, you know, like Podium is a good example of that. They really built their company around reviews. They've expanded since then, but they're a $1.5 billion valuation really on just reviews and where they started. It's actually, I, I like their story because it's a parallels to my own a little bit. The, the founder of Podium, 
his dad owned a auto body repair shop and needed reviews for his auto body repair shop. And so the founder built as tech an app for his dad's auto body repair shop. I love it. So I mean, and, really, I think it's so cool that you built this internally yeah. and now are bringing it out in the world. And yeah. so many people, I've always been an entrepreneur that sort of tried to find problems from the outside looking in, which has its own set of real unique challenges because yeah. you don't understand. Like the, I, I paid a pretty high learning tax. I love it when I hear people, you know, like this was a real problem. This was something you were yes. dealing with day in, day out, and you went to go solve it for yourself. And then there was that moment of like, well, if I'm having this problem, all these other people must be having That's this exactly problem. Right. So what is it like now running a high-tech startup? I mean, you you know, it's a very different animal than yes. um, running a small business. So what are some of the challenges or things you've learned along that path? Man, I love it. It's the most fun I've ever had. Like, I've, I've always been lucky in business and I enjoyed building my family's companies and doing that and you know, working as an accountant and being able to help others was great. But like, this is just... It's the most fun you could ever have and as, a, as an entrepreneur, I think, for me. Like, it's just, first off, just the people. My team is so good, and they are so smart. And great. they are so dynamic. Like, half the time, I'm just trying to get out of their way. Just get out of their way and let them do what they do, because they're going to get it. They're going to get there, you know? Yeah. Um, Such an important leadership lesson, honestly. Yeah, it is. Get out of their way. Let them make it. You know, we make mistakes, obviously, like we're, we're all new to this in a lot, you know, like we don't have the budget yet to go out and hire, you know, six figure experts in everything yeah. we're doing. And so we don't even want to get into my conversation about how a Harvard MBA can screw up anything. Yeah. Right. That's a whole other conversation, yeah, yeah. a whole other thread, but um, that's okay. So you sorry, know, all my Harvard MBA listeners, it's not all of you guys are not that bad. Yeah, but. no, absolutely. And, uh. You know, and that was like, you know, I, to that note, like when I was at Anderson early in my career, you'd see like I mean, there were some amazing people there, like just smartest kids out of the smartest schools in the world. And yeah, they made mistakes too, you know, and that was a great learning lesson early on. Like they were all figuring out the difference there was, you know, Anderson had just huge amounts of like systems in place. Yeah. They had so many systems and so much infrastructure in place. Well, with your company, that, you're, you're basically, you know, battle, you know, braving new ground and then having to backfill with systems right. on top and then that's exactly take right. another hill build another infrastructure. You know, yes, that's exactly right. And so, you know, we're inventing it as we go. We try to like read all the best books and, and follow all the best advice, especially in the SMB space, because it's relatively new. You know, there are other companies now that are working in the SMB space, but I think it's been largely overlooked. You know, like, I, like there's several books that we've all read in my office and I'm always telling Josh and Kyle and some of the people who work with like, you know, guys, there's another book to be written here and you guys are going to write it. There's another volume to it. Like a lot of the books that you see right now on like hacking growth and like from impossible to inevitable, there's, there's a long list of them, but like they're excellent. I recommend all of them. <laughs> I've read them all. I recommend all of them, but like they're, it's an adjustment to make them relevant to the space that we're in, Yeah, interesting. you know, and there's some things missing, you know, there's some gaps that need to be filled. And I always tell these guys like, yeah, you guys are going to write the second volume of those books. So what's been your experience around, you know, capital raising? I mean, one of the things I think partly it's just conjecture, but my experience with Silicon Valley has been there's a lot of echo chambering, right? So everybody's going after these same big opportunities. And if you're not, if you don't kind of fit into that, it's harder to raise capital. Have you run into any struggles being in the SMB market and yeah. capital? To some degree, yeah. I mean, I definitely get questions about like, oh, when are you going to go enterprise? Oh, is this a stepping stone to enterprise? Right? We're, you know, when are you going to enterprise? It's interesting, just over, because you know, we've been at this a couple of years now. That's changing very fast. Like, I think that the tech world in general is opening up or waking up, maybe I yeah. should say, to the SMB space. Because, I mean, enterprise isn't going away. It's still a lot to do in enterprise. But, like, it is, I don't want to use the word saturated. I don't think that's necessarily accurate. But, like, there's just a lot going on there already. Whereas, yeah, like, yeah. in the SMB space, there's not, you know. It requires more rigor. 
Like the SMB space is more rigorous, right? Because I've had potential investors that I've talked to ask me, you know, it's like, oh, when are you going to make your first $100,000 sale? There's a more traditional expectation of like, oh, your goal, right, is to go make big sales because that shows jumps you really fast, especially early stage, right? Yeah. You know, you're trying to get to that, to seed and series A. If you can go throw down a couple hundred thousand dollar sales in a quarter, well, you look like a hero, right? Well, I don't, in the SMB space, it's not like that. We're making hundred dollar sales. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we're going to make a hundred thousand hundred dollar sales. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like that's where we're headed. Yeah. yeah. And that's a harder, that's a more rigorous path. It absolutely changes your strategy about how you can do yes. customer acquisition. I mean, there's just a whole you know, series of things. And then managing, you know, you know, my experience in the paddleboard space, selling to a lot of SMBs. Yeah. Difficult. Like, you know, not every business owner has the same level of understanding or, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's yeah, challenging. You know, it is. You have a huge variation in expertise and no stereotypes hold. Like, we've literally sat on demos with doctor's office. We have a lot of medical client, clinics that use us. And it's like a room on, you know, it's all been Zoom, right? Over these last year or whatever. It's a room full of doctors on Zoom who literally like can't open a Chrome browser, right? And like, we're starting with like, okay, this is a Chrome browser. And then literally the next demo will be like, there was this kid, this user of ours that runs a bicycle shop, you know? And he's like, he repairs bicycles. And he's like, hey man, well, what about this integration? And what about that integration? And when are you guys going to get this? And like, I'm looking to set up this whole thing where it's just automated from here to there. And it's like, I mean, you know, he's yeah, a millennial yeah. and he's smart and he was obviously very smart. He's an awesome kid. God knows in 10 years, he'll probably have like a bicycle empire. You know, I don't know. But but it, it was so funny because it's like the guy who's running the bicycle shop is like super tech forward and like yeah. ready to rock and roll. Right. And then like the, the medical clinic is like, what is text messaging? You know, like, well, how does that work? Like, why do we need this? You know, and we get them both there. We can get both of those yeah, those yeah. customers to to the same place, you know. But it's a very different path. It's a very different conversation to get sure. to get those. And so, yeah, you have huge variance in comfort level, expertise, and then for a lot of our customers too, like they're just overwhelmed. You know, their day to day is just, you know, like the vets right now. Like we are very active in the vet space, and man, you know, what happened during COVID was everybody stayed home and they bought pets. I know. I'm in the, I'm in the process of getting a dog, although I will not publish this until after we get the dog. So, so my kids don't know, but that's there you a whole go, thing. There you go. Well, apparently, and this is something I learned, you know, like the number of pet owners in the United States went up by like, I don't know, 30% or something over the last 20, 12 to 24 months. But the number of veterinarians has not, mm. <laughs> it is the same. Interesting. Right. Okay. And so they're all know. like overwhelmed. Every vet office that we talk to, They've got two or three people in the office and like the phones are melting and they are like, I don't know what to do. And they've got all these new pet owners and whatnot. And so, you know, they're very quick to adapt like message desk technology as soon as they see it. But just getting five minutes yeah, to just sit get down with space. them yeah. and like get them to like relax for a minute and be like, okay, you see like 60% of these phone calls don't, don't need to happen. They can all be text messages because it's just automated stuff. Like here's your appointment time for next week. We can take care of that. Like that all goes away. 60%. Like we, we got you covered. And what it really does is then it frees you up for that 40% that are the important calls. Yeah. You know, yeah. my, my pet is very sick. I have an issue. What do we do? I'm worried. And that's part of it too. You know, obviously vets like, like in other medical fields, like people, it's a, they're worried and there's a heightened level of concern. Sure. There. I mean, and they so, didn't get into it. I mean, obviously it's a good, they can make money, but they came into it for the same reason why you went into, you know, small business, you're passionate. You know? Absolutely. You know, and uh, it's particularly interesting in the vet space because it's, it's the one medical area where the patient isn't the decision maker. 
right? So the patient, the animal, is not the decision maker. And so you have these situations that I've been learning about where you, know, you might literally have an animal like under anesthesia and they're like a procedure may or may not be needing to be done and there's going to be costs associated with it. And the vet's office is literally trying to like call the owner at work and be like, you know, it could be something as simple as a tooth cleaning. It doesn't have to be something really strange. Like, oh, we found like uh, a bad tooth. It's going to be $500. Do you want us to extract it while we can or do you want us to leave it in? Yeah. And they're trying to get an answer to that like on the spot yeah. while they have the animal under anesthesia or something, right? And Interesting. so, yeah, message desk, that's like, per, like yeah, just text them. <laughs> you know, just text yeah, them. No, I love it. <laughs> I mean, what did, I mean, what a great solution. Yeah. It's really interesting. So as you guys are growing, I mean, how big are you now in terms of personnel? So we have 13. 13? Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. That's a good size. Not all of them are full-time. Sure. So we have made an art out of hiring kids right out of UNR. I mean, we are a Nevada company, man. We are, you know, not only are all four founders from Reno, Kyle and Jason are actually born and raised here. Corey and I, I've said, were both born in Texas, but were raised here. All four founders from Reno. And literally our entire company is literally with the exception of Corey and I, because he went to school in California and I went to school in Arizona. Every one of them are UNR graduates. Yeah. Which I think honestly is the way you have to do it now. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got a couple, you know, being in economic development, I've seen a lot of yeah. different companies. And Bombora was one of the first that did this, which they really leveraged the internship programs. Yeah. And oh, they yeah. got a lot of people in, kind of see, you know, do they have the right culture fit, whatever, you know, they have the right skills and built a large team. And I'm really glad, you know, it, it takes a bit more work sometimes, but then you get an amazing person at a better cost and they're probably there with you for a longer period of time and super invested, super committed. And we're in a loser win as a team. Like we all know that, like we, we rise and fall together and we didn't know if this would work early on, but you know, when we started, we had four founders who all had, you know, Corey and Jason have a lot of deep technical expertise. Kyle's in marketing. You know, he has a deep, deep content marketing background And I have a really deep, you know, the background we've been talking about today. And so part of our discussion early on as four founders was like, well, can we teach? Can we train? Can we train kids or, you know, I say kids, but like just, I'd hire anybody. I I don't care, but it's just like interns or or there's a direct line to the internship program for us at UNR that was available to us, you know? And so can we teach these interns how to do this? And we have, you know, and Corey and Jason have led the charge on the technical side. We have, besides them, they have three full-time developers now, all right out of computer science at UNR. And they're building at a level that is far beyond like what a normal, you know, 25-year-old out of co- any computer science program, I don't care if it's Harvard or or wherever, you know, like would be doing. And, and I can say the confidence because I used to work with those kids back at Anderson. Yeah. And so, yeah, like they're just, we've just taken them. And that's why small business and startups are so dynamic because like we don't have a choice. It's not like, oh, come in and sit down and read documentation for six months and like get up to speed. It's like, no, no, dude, we got stuff to build yeah. and it's got to go now and like figure it out, you know? It's so valuable. This is one of the, when we talk with the career studio early on, you know, in the pack and turn program, they solicit some insights and we said, look, don't give a free interns to Microsoft or any of those places. Like they can go pay for interns, but yeah. if put that pack program out to support companies under, a, you know, under a couple million dollars, because they will get the most unbelievable experience out of that. You're not going to go push paperwork. You're going to go get the real experience. And so that's part of, I've had a lot of internships right out of college and it was just the most unbelievable learning experience. And so you just level these, you know, people up right away. And it's so good for our community. You know, the startups teach them things that they would just not otherwise get. And that just as time plays forward, we'll just have 
a better workforce because of things like absolutely you know and, and it's hard like it's not for everybody like i'll be honest we've had you know interns come in that just couldn't hack it sure but for those that like can step up and figure it out like it is the sky is the limit like just go you know and then what's largely for for Corey and jason has become the role is like to be provide the resources and when they hit a wall help them break through that wall yeah. and get to the next one See, that, and just keep going, you know? That speaks to, again, just from a leadership perspective. I mean, I, you know, I really think as a leader, you're helping, you're like the host. You're helping people journey on yes. their, on their, you know, yeah. on, going on their own journey. And so really removing barriers, helping, you know, helping them succeed. I mean, it just speaks highly to, at least to, you know, my vision of what really great leadership is. It sounds like you guys are doing a great job over there. Yeah, no, we're trying. And so, yeah, we've built with just local talent. And, you know, we built in-house too, which I didn't understand this coming into this project. But, you know, I know a lot of, there's nothing wrong with this. It's just different. You know, like a lot of tech startups will actually outsource a lot of their yeah. technological development, like overseas to Eastern Europe or Southeast Asia. Pretty common. Yeah, I hear it's that pretty common. Lot. And then again, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm sure that a lot of them do really well and are very successful, probably more successful than we are. But it's just not been our path. You know, our path is like in-house. Every single line of code has been written in Reno. Every single line. I like that. Written in Reno, hashtag. Yeah, written in Reno, hashtag. <laughs> and it's just our path. You know, and I think- The whole story has been written in Reno, which is great. It is. It's true. And I think that just, you talk about like, you know, the leadership of it. Like, I think it's just my mentality coming out of like a yeah. systems development and build background was like, to me, it just seemed like the natural thing to do, you know? And we did, you know, we had the advantage too of like, we had a better idea. I mean, we've learned a ton about what our customers want and don't like and like and et cetera. But coming into it from day one, like we had a much, like we had a cheat sheet. <laughs> we had a huge cheat sheet on what our customers were going to want and not want because we were doing it in three states every day. Like, you know, when Corey was building for those first two years, like before I came in, he wasn't talking to anybody other than our own companies. And we were building from, they were using the app already, you know, the early versions of it. Yeah. So you had, you had so, real good, deep knowledge on what was needed. So, absolutely. so what's, what's next for you guys? What's the big, next big milestone or next big push for your Yeah. Company? So we have to scale our marketing and sales. You know, like Kyle has been in there just pounding at it for 24 months, two couple of years now. And he's been able to accomplish a ton. Like it's, it's kind of ridiculous, actually, if you look how big at our footprint, our digital marketing footprint on the internet is really big. You know, everything we've done up to this point has been inbound focused. It's all inbound content. And, and it's a good, it's a, it's a good methodology. The problem, if there is a problem with inbound is that you have to wait for the customer to come to you. And I think we're at a point now where we're ready to go get customers. And so, you know, yep. Josh and Taylor are in the office and they're very focused on, we're going to go get customers. Like we're going to go get those customers. And so it's our first foray into outbound sales. Yep. You know, we'll talk offline about that. I yeah. have some, some thoughts for you on how to, where I, I've seen success doing lead gen for Edon, but we'll talk. More yeah, about no, that. I'd yeah, love it's, to. it's definitely, and it's definitely like, you know, for me personally, it's the area that I'm the weakest in. I'm very comfortable in a technical conversation and I'm very comfortable in like the management and building of tech marketing sales. That was never an area I spent yeah. time in, you know? Yeah. And so I've been relying a lot on Kyle. We've been figuring it out as we go, yeah. you know? And, and like, so we've made like, like Kyle's made huge strides, but you talk about next steps, it's time to like level up, yeah. you know, and to get to the next bit. And so, yeah, for us really, the immediate future is about marketing and sales. We're going to continue to build tech. Like there's a lot of tech still to be built. Sure. But that's not. Got to get it out in the world. Yeah. We got to get it out in the world. Yeah. Exactly. So. That's you awesome. Know, we've got, I think we have a customer now in every state except for South Dakota. And so I know Alaska was a hold out there for a while, but we finally got Alaska. That's the magic of tech, right? Like we're like this small team here in Reno and you can have 
national reach. We yeah. have company, we have customers in Canada as well. So we technically are international at this point with, with Canada. And we will continue to do that. Like we're going to go to in like, so there are 30 million small businesses in the United States. There are 75 million small businesses in India, 75 million. I can't wait to open the Mumbai office. I like, can't wait for you to open the Mumbai I, office. I'm, I'm excited for India. I'm excited for the whole world. Like we're going to go everywhere. You know, I got to just tell you that I just so appreciate your passion. It's been really a joy to learn more about what drives you. And, you know, you, your your passion for small business comes out, uh, you know, I, I, your leadership. I'm just so happy that you're building your company in Reno, Nevada. It really means a lot to me. I've been working really hard over the, you know, many years to make this a place where people can be successful. And it just makes me happy to hear your story, especially because it's an organic story. Absolutely, man. Like, you know, this is home. We, yeah. we all are from here. I know the whole rest of the world is discovering Reno now, and I'm, I'm happy for that. I'm happy that, you know, it's going to make this... This has become such a dynamic environment, like yeah. with everything in Reno, and it's going to continue to grow. And because of the work that you, you know you and everyone at Edon is doing, like you guys, you guys have been amazing, honestly. Like, you know, and that was the thing when I came home. You know, I'd always come back to Reno for holidays and stuff, but I had really been gone most of my adult life. When I came back in 2016 to really start working on this in earnest, I didn't understand how dynamic this business environment had become at large, the tech scene here, the tech environment, the investment environment. I mean, you know, the Reno Seed Fund yep. and the angel investment network that is here in this local community. I had no, I was coming here because it was home. And, you know, my brother was here and our family was here. And so I was like, this is where we're going to do this. But like, I had no idea. And what a gift, like what a gift. Yeah. What, uh, you talk about organically, to be able to come home to Reno and be like, oh, it turns out that there's this beautiful tech community here. There's this beautiful burgeoning, you know, ecosystem of founders and technologists and, and oh, what? There's a Reno seed fund? What's that? You know, like, you mean there's actually like angel investors in this community that are interested in like building companies here or companies being built here? Like, unbelievable. Like, never would have, I, if you had asked me, you know, in 2015, the year before I came here, like, I would have thought that was just a pipe dream. It was a pipe dream in 2015, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, it, it makes me happy to hear that. I mean, especially for Nevadans who left because they didn't have opportunity. Cause you know, one of my things was like, I love this community, but I knew that there was real limitations yeah. and people, we lost a lot of great people because they wanted to go do cool things. And you just couldn't do it here. Yeah. But the script has been flipped. I mean, it, you know, I mean, there's still challenges. I mean, we definitely need a lot of growth and diversification of our capital sources and talent and all of those things. But that's the problem I think about every day. Yeah. But it's really nice to hear from your perspective, leaving and coming back and, and being welcome home to that. It really makes me happy to hear you say that. No, absolutely. I, I really appreciate that you guys have put in that work. And it's definitely like, I mean, it's obviously not been in vain. Like, it's amazing what you guys have been able to accomplish. I know that there are challenges ahead. But like anything, there is a momentum to this sure. and it's not going to stop, you know, and that's where like the community really, you know, we're going to get some big wins, you know, we're going to get some big money that comes in here. we have great money coming in here now, but like, we're going to get even bigger wins. And it's just every, every win and it, it, it not just message desk. I mean, like there's a lot, a lot of them have been on your podcast. <laughs> there is a lot of talent here right now that's doing some really interesting oh, yeah. things. And like and COVID's brought a lot more people. Yeah. Every win literally like all ships rise on the same tide, right? Like every win is going to result in opening the door. And I'm already experiencing that, you know, like as we talk, as we expand our network of like venture capitalist connections and stuff like that, people are very curious. Everybody I talk to is very curious about Reno. 
Yeah. You know, like what's going on there? Who, what other companies do you guys hang out? You know, like, like everybody wants to know, I have, I've had a lot of great conversations with VCs outside of this area, even outside the Bay area, you know, like there's a lot of VC activity happening all over the country now. And man, they, everybody has a page on Reno. Like everybody oh, yeah. has their eye on it. They want to know what's going on. They want to know how they can get in. Cause you know, nobody wants to be, you don't want to be the last one to the party. Nope. You know what I'm saying? No, you don't no one wants to be the one. first person to the party. No one wants to be the last person. Yeah. To the party. And so they're trying to like, oh yeah. Like what's the opportunity here? You know, yeah. what's the opportunity here and where was it going to be? So. That's awesome. Well, I'm really excited to see where you take message desk. I've really, this has been an honor to have you on the podcast yeah. and um, yeah, just good luck on all the, you know, what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, of course, always uh, happy to help in any way I can. Oh, absolutely, man. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you.